Keep your heads up. Play proud. Let's fly! The new Mighty Ducks show revives one of the most beloved sports movie franchises. But in the new Mighty Ducks show, the Ducks are the baddies. I don't get why he has to be so mean like that. Because he's a duck. That's what they do. The new Mighty Ducks show forces us to ask, are all of yesterday's heroes actually today's villains? Is there anything to believe in anymore, Dave? Believe in this, Jonah. The Mighty Ducks show is actually a sly satire of reboot culture. This is Galaxy Brains. And today we're making a flying V with our minds. Welcome to Galaxy Brains, the podcast where movies, TV, and overthinking collide. I'm Dave Schilling. And I'm a passenger on the friendship of the SS Schilling, Jonah Ray. And each week on the show, we start with the logical brain, advance to the critical brain, question everything with the interrogation brain, and of course, arrive to the blessed state of the galaxy brain. Today, our guest is screenwriter, host of the podcast Script Notes, and master of reboots, John August. But first... Let's talk about the new Disney Plus series, Mighty Ducks Game Changers. Mighty Ducks Game Changers is the latest extension of a franchise that started all the way back in 1992. Back then, hockey was all the rage with American kids, which made the Mighty Ducks a surprise hit that spawned two sequels, an animated series, and a real-life NHL team. Jonah, did you play hockey growing up? I grew up on the island of Oahu, Dave. The only ice I knew was the slang term for crack, which we also called Batu. Jonah, I'm very sorry for what we've done to your people. <laughs> anyway, Mighty Ducks wasn't just a hockey movie. Oh no, it was also about underdogs overcoming snobby rich kid bullies, which is exactly what the new Disney Plus TV series is also about. Except this time, believe it or not, the evil team is the Mighty Ducks themselves. That's right, the Ducks have gone corporate, shunning our new hero, little Evan Morrow, who with the help of his mom, played by Gilmore Girls star Lauren Graham, forms his own team to take down the team that rejected him. Gotta form that team to take down the team. Team. Also, Gordon Bombay is retired from coaching and incredibly bitter. See, I took every single piece of hockey equipment in this place, I put it in a dumpster, and then I set fire to it. That wasn't even the darkest thing I did that day. So it's basically Cobra Kai on ice? Yes, but it's also so much more. Let's lace up our skates and expand our minds. It's time for Critical Brain. All right, I want to preface our Critical Brain section uh, with a couple notes. One, we are getting into spoilers for the episodes that have been released of Mighty Ducks. Two, we have not seen the entire first season of the show. Therefore, there are no grand spoilers, but what we can tell you for sure, no knuckle puck so far, Jonah. What is going on here? You never heard of my knuckle puck? I think that's going to be a huge reveal later on. It's, there's going to be all of a sudden you're going to be like, you know what? They're probably not going to play their hit. Then all of a sudden in the encore, Knuckle Puck gets just like they do it. You know that one kid you haven't seen say anything or do anything? Well, he knows this special trick. One of the things I want to talk about with this show is the look of it. It's very nostalgic and very warm and like it almost looks like a Norman Rockwell painting come to life. And oddly enough, Jonah, I don't know if you know this, but they film this during COVID in Canada. I couldn't tell. 
I could not tell either. And I agree with you, Dave. I wasn't expecting to like this show as much as I did. I was a fan. You know, I was a kid when the Mighty Ducks came out and I, I loved it. Uh, but this show with that nostalgic twinge gave me some chills here and there. Way more jokes than I believe the original movies ever had. And also with Lauren Graham involved, there is that joke heavy Gilmore Girls aesthetic that's in there for sure. But also with the nostalgic thing of having it in the Midwest and having the end of an episode even being a Paul Westerberg song, which was, he was the singer of The Replacements, which was one of the bigger bands in Minneapolis. And so there's a lot of care taken into the new yet nostalgic aspect of the show that just makes it comfortable to watch. Yeah, I think they know their audience really well. They know that they're going to get some kids. It's made for kids. Yeah, it's a kid's show, but it's also a show that you and I, people our age, can watch and say, hmm, okay, they put a Paul Westerberg song in there, or Lauren Graham shows up. And Lauren Graham in Gilmore Girls, obviously, is a huge thing that a lot of people our age got into. Like, it does have that nostalgia, but it also feels modern in the in the casting and, and in the way that they approach gender and the way that they approach sports as a, as a concept. I want to say real quick too, like a, a, like a nice signifying middle point of the multi-generational enjoyment of this is like how a parent that's our age and a kid that is the age of these kids in the show can watch it and both laugh almost separately at the joke where they go up to the spooky house and he's like, is this the house from it? That works because of that reboot. All of a sudden, there's this all these layers of rebootedness going on there. Yeah, it's uh, it's like a Russian nesting doll of references. <laughs> yeah. uh, speaking of the cast of this show, I love the comic relief podcast kid. He's very funny. He looks just like a small James Corden, but he's very good and he delivers his lines expertly. Legend has it, a kid once fell through the ice and he's still there. So basically, we're skating on Frozen Boy, but it's nice. He is very, very funny. I really, really like that kid. He's perfect. What about the kid with the really good hair who you think is going to be great at hockey? And oh, guess what? He can't skate. Dave, if we're going to be talking hockey, we have to use hockey terms. No one in hockey has good hair. They have good salad. Uh, hey, guys, I'm Logan. God has blessed me with a solid head of lettuce. They have this weird music playing over like his introduction. It's almost sort of like when the babe shows up in an 80s teen comedy, but he ends up being kind of a goof. But that was very much a parody moment, I believe. Like a new hot neighbor shows up and the two boys are like, whoa. But it just happens to be a, you know, a boy from Toronto. Uh, I turned to my girlfriend and I said, oh, this is the good kid. Because there's always the one kid who's super good at the sport. If it's a bad news bears, if it's... Little Giants, or if it's this, there's always the one kid. But this time, the kid is a girl and a South Asian girl to boot. This is a show that is taking what you expect from the genre and saying, hmm, it's going to be uh, something a little different. But he's the good kid in the sense of this show where he's just a good kid. He's just this dopey, super sweet kid that doesn't mean anybody any harm. And that's like kind of what the show vibe is about. It's like, don't worry about the accomplishments as much as being a good person. Yeah, I, th I guess that's the weirdest part about the underdog sports movie trope is at the end of the day, the kids who are told, don't worry about winning and losing. It's not important. They end up winning. They never lose. And it's like, oh, well, you know, you did a great job. Let's go out for pizza. It's always you won the state championship and now everyone loves you. Even Major League, like they have to win at the end. But the, the character who doesn't subvert our expectations and who doesn't win is Gordon Bombay, the protagonist of the original Mighty Ducks movie, who becomes a youth hockey coach. Why, Jonah? 
because he got a DUI. I don't think we're going to end up hearing about that in this in this version. You're not gonna you're not gonna hear about his his problematic drinking leading him to getting a DUI and then leading him into being the coach of children. You're like, hey, listen, you were pulled over for drunk driving. We're gonna put you in charge of some kids. Why not just dock Hollywood it and have him like accidentally crash into a fence and then have him do it? Why did it have to be a DUI? Well, I think because in Bad News Bears, Walter Matthau character was an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. And then Hoosiers, Dennis Hopper's character was an alcoholic. There's some connection between underdog sports movies and people who don't know how to moderate their drinking. And I don't know what it is. Gordon Bombay, well, certainly a complicated man. He doesn't want anything to do with hockey in this show. Why? We don't find out until episode three. Gordon Bombay quit the Ducks because the Ducks became too corporate. Then he became a professional hockey player at the age of 35. Well, he was in a he was in a, a minor league team. He was not in the NHL, but he was on a like he was on a pathway to it, maybe when he got hurt. Yeah, at 35 years old. One of the more unlikely aspects of this show, a 35-year-old man playing professional hockey, physically, just you get demolished playing hockey. And uh, of course, that career ends when he gets crushed by a 19-year-old child, essentially a teenager who is uh, coming up in, in the sport. And he so he quits, and then he becomes a college coach. And he gets banned from coaching college hockey because he gives a kid who doesn't have money for tape for his stick some money for tape and the NCAA bans him. So my question to you, Jonah, is the NCAA the actual villain of the Mighty Ducks Game Changers? Well, I I don't know. I don't think we can say that. I think in a way they're the heroes because they're the impetus to start the whole story. If it wasn't for the NCAA, then Gordon Bombay wouldn't have gone to help the Mighty Ducks play. Oh, Jonah, that is the same backwards logic the NCAA uses to not pay its athletes who are generating them billions of dollars. That young boy just needed some tape for his stick. The NCAA doesn't supply enough budget and and money. And where does that money go, Jonah? Where does that money go? Into the pockets of the student athlete? Oh, no, 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 no. It goes to a bunch of fat cats who spend it on yachts, expensive cars, and uh, an espresso machine. That's what they spend their money on. The NCAA is absolutely the villain of this show. They are the reason why these poor young children have to get sports psychologists. Did you see this? There was a sports psychologist that one of these kids had. This kid's like 12 years old. What are they thinking about out there? Yeah, but I mean, if a coach is like just giving one of his student athletes money, I'd be suspect too. I'm glad you brought up the coach because the coach of the new Mighty Ducks the new evil Mighty Ducks, uh, he's, a, he's, he's a pretty good kind of asshole character. But aren't you always saying you can't measure heart? Yeah, that's something I got off the internet and I'm phasing it out. Like all of these movies and TV shows, they always have to have one blonde-haired jerk and this is the guy... This actor uh, does a fantastic job being hateable. He's a great actor at it. Full disclosure, I auditioned for the part of that coach uh, a while back. I don't know why. I one of the well, I know why. One of the reasons I'm a tall guy, so I come off as a, I have athletic height, but not built. But also, I lied and said I could skate, which I cannot. I'm glad I didn't get it because that would have been an embarrassing first day on the job. Yeah, you and that little kid from Toronto would have been uh, talking about how you can't skate together. That's the part I should have gone for. They should have been, you know what, we'll just use computers to make you look like a small hot kid. You know, Gordon Bombay is so far a tragic character, meaning you could want everything and almost achieve it, but it'll never be exactly what you want and it'll still get taken away from you. I spent my entire life chasing hockey and I have 
absolutely nothing to show for it. At the same time, he did win the District 5 championship with the Ducks. So there is that. He accomplished some things. He molded some young men's minds and young women's minds. Shouldn't that be enough? But he wanted the fame. He wanted to be a player. And he's the sideline guy now. Well, Jonah, let me just tell you, there are some people who are the stars and there are some people who are the sidekicks. And I think we know where you and I fall on that spectrum. Exactly. Two sidekicks hosting a podcast. Yes. Whose idea was this? <laughs> it seems to me that there is some ambivalence about the original Mighty Ducks, that there's some kind of like, ah, you know, it was a long time ago and now it's too corporate because the Mighty Ducks are the bad guys. As we've said multiple times, why would you make the Ducks the bad guys? To subvert expectation. Isn't that what they do with reboots? That's the elevator pitch. It's a reboot of the Mighty Ducks. They're like, I've heard that before. And they're like, but they're the bad guys. And they put their hand outside the elevator. They go, hold on, what did you say? What the fuck did you just say? The Mighty Ducks, our special little guys, are the bad guys? Fuck you, I'm in. <laughs> I guess it's kind of like The Last Jedi, you know? Like, you go into the, a Star Wars reboot. Do Han Solo and Princess Leia have a kid? Of course they do. They're knocking boots all the time. They're cons they can't keep their hands off each other. Those two scamps, they just <laughs> love to knock boots. When they were knocking space boots, do you think Han shot first? <laughs> oh, oh, oh. Uh, I would say yes. Anyway, yes, of course they have kids. But what if, what if their kid was evil. Wait, what the fuck? What the fuck did you just say? Are you talking about our special little heroes, Han Solo and Princess Leia? They have a kid and their heart is not pure gold? Fuck you, I'm in. It's just, all. that's all you have to do. Hey kids, if you're out there and you wanna be a screenwriter in Hollywood, first of all, stick around, listen to John August. Second of all, just take the thing that you assume is gonna happen and do the opposite. That's all it takes. It's the easiest job in the world. But that's just like the thing now. That is the trend is to take the thing that you loved and say, mm, well, yeah, but what if he had a daughter? Mm, what if he was evil now? Mm, what if he was really, really, really disillusioned? I guess that's one, a good way to sell tickets, but two, a reflection of our time, a reflection of a dark, depressing, sad time. But that's a later day hero's journey. That's unforgiven. That's like a lot of cowboy stuff. It's like, that's also a trope. It's the later in life hero that was a hero, then became disillusioned and has to refine that stuff, that, that mojo. What I'm saying is every later day hero is the movie How Stella Got Her Groove Back. You have to, like we said, subvert expectations constantly. And that's what sports movies of the modern era have been doing or sports TV shows. Cobra Kai, which we said is kind of <laughs> a clear inspiration for Mighty Ducks Game Changers, says Daniel LaRusso wasn't so great. And actually, you know, all those characters you thought were evil, they have some worth and some agency and some humanity. Or Creed taking Apollo Creed's uh, illegitimate son and making him the hero and making it a, a story about African-American characters. Like these movies are changing things quite a bit. I don't know if it's because we can't have things that are too idealistic or if we're too cynical to handle the heroes of the past now, or if it's just an easy way to make a couple extra dollars. But that is what our cinema is today. That's what our TV shows are today. Uh, Jonah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to blow your mind here for a second. If we're looking for a comparison for Mighty Ducks Game Changers, maybe it's not Cobra Kai. Maybe it's not Creed. Maybe it's not any sports movie. Maybe we need to look outside the sports movie genre and say that Mighty Ducks Game Changers is really the dark night for kids. 
Wait, hold on. Does Gordon Bombay kill someone with a pencil? No. No, no, he does. And does Michael Caine show up at any point? Jonah, please don't be ridiculous. I mean, is there a character forced into a moral quandary in which he has to choose between his friend and the woman he loves? Uh, no, no, I'm not saying that. Uh, what I'm saying is in The Mighty Ducks, just like in The Dark Knight, the theme is that you either die a hero or live long enough to see yourself become the villain. It's a stretch, Dave, but uh, listen. You see, in every underdog story, the underdog eventually becomes successful and loses their soul, like in Rocky Three Or The Dark Knight. For the purposes of this theory, absolutely. Anyway, in Rocky Three, Rocky becomes a total sellout hack loser, just like the Ducks team does in Game Changers. And just like the actual Muddy Ducks film became a gigantic multi-million dollar multimedia franchise that flamed out with a forgettable third film. Mighty Ducks Game Changers is a satire of the very idea of a Mighty Ducks reboot. Mighty Ducks Game Changers is self-parody? Yes, yes, Jonah, my word, you're, f oh God. You're phasing in and out of this dimension. Oh my God, hey, are you saying that we just galaxy brain so hard that I'm teleporting? Yes, but where are you going? Taco Bell, maybe Del Taco, I'm not sure. You want me to bring you some in the back or? Yeah, I love Del Taco's uh, cheeseburger. Oh. I, I know it's a weird choice, but it's so good. Well, Jonah's gone. But when you and I come back from this break, we'll be talking to superstar screenwriter John August about how he successfully rebooted a different Disney classic. Welcome back to Galaxy Brains. The new Mighty Ducks TV show intelligently and slyly makes fun of reboots and movie franchises, which piqued our interest. How do writers, studios, and showrunners avoid the pitfalls of rebooting franchises? To figure it out, we're sitting down with the master of reboots, host of the podcast Script Notes, and writer of Charlie's Angels, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, and the Disney live-action adaptation of Aladdin, John August. John, thank you so much for joining us today. Absolute pleasure to be here. I want to start off talking about the broad issue of reboots and reboot culture, something that you're intimately familiar with. And I think everybody who's listening to this show is because we are inundated with this kind of stuff. And the Muddy Ducks is interesting as a jumping off point because it is this thing that is like, oh, do we even like the fact that we're rebooting this? You've had countless conversations with studios about how to approach this material. How do you talk about keeping that core of a franchise or a series while also making it fresh in something that people don't feel like is a retread? Well, I think it starts with a conversation about why are we even thinking about remaking this or rebooting this? And there's really two kind of buckets you could throw those into. There's the remake it because it's a really good idea. And so that could be a foreign film that you're remaking into English. It could be just a, a great movie that it's iconic, but people may not have seen it. So like if you were remaking The Guns of Navarone or The Searchers, like you could remake those movies or reboot those movies and you're just taking the IP of, of the story. Like, oh, the story is so good, we should redo this. But most of what we're talking about with reboots and remakes is we're doing this because it is iconic, because it was so successful that people have this nostalgic value associated with it. And those are more the things that I get sort of approached with. And it can be tough because you're really asking, is this a good idea 
in a vacuum, or is this a good idea because we could market this movie? John, promise me they're not remaking The Searchers anytime soon. I'm absolutely certain there are <laughs> some version of The Searchers will happen. It's a fantastic movie. If you don't know what the hell I'm talking about because you're 22 years old, The Searchers is a, a classic John Wayne, John Ford collaboration. Go out of your way to watch it. Yeah, but there's going to be a version that's essentially like, it's The Fast and the Furious, but it's The Searchers. I don't think you're necessarily going to take it like as a Western. You'll take that idea and transpose it to something new. So maybe we do The Searchers, but we take the horses out and we replace them with souped up muscle cars. How are studios responding to you if like you say, I want to do searchers with with cars instead of horses like what would that what is that reaction like with that example we're saying like i'm gonna take this basic idea and do a a complete like reskin on it they'd be into it but they i think they would always be wondering like well then we can't call it the searchers or can we call it the searchers or do we have to have the underlying ip behind it right now i'm working on a movie called toto which is an animated feature which is the wizard of oz from toto's point of view which is just a really good idea they came to me with that and what was interesting about the IP is because it's at Warner Brothers, they own the original MGM movie. And so they have things like the Ruby Slippers and all the songs. And so I could use all those things. And so it's more valuable to make that movie at Warner's than some other place. Let me ask you this. Of the three reboots that you've done that have come out and we've seen Aladdin, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, Charlie's Angels, is there anything from those franchises where you had to take something out that you wish could have been in your version of that intellectual property? I think it's probably better to start with talking about like Aladdin, which is the most recent one. It's probably the most indicative of sort of what this trend is like. So Aladdin, I was approached by a producer who said, hey, we're talking with Disney about doing a live action version of Aladdin. And in that room, I was like, oh, I absolutely know how to do that. And so I came back the next day. It's like, here's how we're going to do this. And we went and pitched it. It all happened really quickly. And so the pitch for Aladdin was basically saying, it's the same story. Just we're giving human motivations to these cartoon characters. And so they're doing the same things, but for different reasons and times. And I really stressed with Aladdin, you have that iconic Robin Williams performance, and you just can't duplicate that. So we got to do something different. So I said, well, let's talk about Aladdin and Genie being more like friends, like bros, rather than the sort of cocaine uncle <laughs> kind of thing that we got off of off of Robin yeah. Williams. So Aladdin's relationship with Genie, that Jasmine is going to become the sultan. And basically just right from the start, like that is her arc. And that, so she wants to get out of this palace so she can learn how to actually rule this kingdom. The last idea, which didn't really sort of manifest in the final film, is that it takes place in the same universe as the other live-action reboots. It seems like what you are saying is essentially taking something that we know, something that we have an affection for, but updating it a little bit. Because, you know, you're giving Jasmine some more agency. You're making the genie maybe slightly more approachable and less manic. Just like little elements that make it feel like it's in 2021 or 2019 when it came out versus, you know, just kind of porting it over. Absolutely, because you're, you're making it for a modern audience. And so you're not, the original movie still is out there and people can always watch it. But you have to sort of look at it from a 2022 lens. And so things like the Bechdel test, which is basically this idea that you need at least two female characters in the story who talk to each other about something other than a man, which seems like the (laughs) lowest bar to clear. But the original Aladdin would not do that. And so until you actually add more female characters, you can't do that. It's looking at representations of people of color. And especially when you look at anything set in the past, it's realizing that like we can have this golden age idea of sort of like, oh, the 1950s were so wonderful, but they were not wonderful for everybody. And so you have to be aware of that as you're sort of telling your stories. So when you get a piece of IP, a franchise that has problematic elements, 
Is it the studio that's coming to you and saying, hey, okay, we know we've got this stuff in here. It's not so great. Or is it you saying, here are the five things that we absolutely can't have in this? Yeah, an example would be like Peter Pan. It's like Peter Pan has the Native Americans in it that just does, does not read properly in this time. So you're going to have to come in with an approach for how you're going to do that. And the studios are going to be aware of that. The bigger frustration I've encountered is that studios are fundamentally scaredy cats. They're conservative and they want the safest possible version. And the safest possible version can often be just the carbon copy clone of the original property. And so you run into situations where, okay, well, this is a smarter way to do this thing. It's like, yes, but that's not how it was done in the original thing. We want to make sure we don't annoy anybody by making any changes. And so that's the challenge of nostalgia. It's great for getting butts in seats, but also it can be a straitjacket. As a writer, you want to have some constraints to help you sort of channel your creativity, but you don't want to just feel like you can only write certain words. It's interesting that this is the way that the world is going, that we're, we're fighting back against certain changes. You know, people complain about the idea of a black James Bond all the time. It constantly comes up. But there are other instances where nobody said a peep about a black Bosley in the second, in the Charlie's Angels yeah. sequel. I wonder why. Why is it that some, some things upset people and some things don't? Well, you know why that is. Because James Bond is a sexual creature and Bosley is not. And Bosley is essentially a harmless assistant. And so therefore, it, it doesn't feel like jeopardizing anything to make that character black. That's a great point. It, it doesn't threaten anybody. Yeah, I mean, Black Bosley is sort of like the black judge syndrome, where we need to have representation of black authority figures. So every police drama is going to have the black lieutenant or the black judge. Yeah, in the 90s, it was all black police chiefs and captains mm-hmm. screaming at their hothead lieutenant or something. It got really cliche to the point where I'd rather they just get killed off in the first act anyway. I want to bring this back around to Mighty Ducks because I feel like we're talking about a really important issue in that show, which is how do you take something that is so rooted in its time and and modernize it? And the way that this show does that is to take the Mighty Ducks as a team and turn them into the evil empire. To me, it feels like this is kind of a sly commentary on the whole idea of the franchise of of taking a beloved piece of art and then turning it into something that's more corporatized, I guess. Why are reboots and remakes like this so self-aware sometimes? I think there's a, a natural sort of like late stage postmodernism that sort of kicks in. Like you, you sort of, you, you always want to reverse sort of who the protagonist or the antagonist is, what the expectations are. That's a natural thing a, a storyteller will, will go to. We faced a similar thing with Charlie's Angels. And so that was a, a reboot where we had this iconic 70s TV show which was wonderful, but also problematic in a lot of ways. These these three beautiful women who are working for this mysterious boss, and it was a sexuality and it didn't feel quite appropriate for a movie. And and so those initial conversations, Drew Barrymore brought me in for a meeting and we were just sitting on a couch and just really talking about what it felt like. And coming up with a tone, which was that the angels is being sort of like your dorky kid sister who somehow (laughs) wins the Olympics, who's like really annoying, but is also great. And how these women could be incredibly effective when they're on the job, but just giant dorks when they're off the job. That was crucial. And nailing that tone, let us then think about, okay, what is the actual plot, the story that could get us to that point? And it seems like with Mighty Ducks, they're like, we want it to feel like reversal of our expectations. It, it reminds me of that classic line from The Dark Knight, you either die a hero or live long enough to see yourself become the villain. And I guess that is kind of the trajectory of a lot of these 
reboots, I guess in the underdog stories, eventually you become successful. And then what do you do with that success? I think it's it's a natural place to go with these films. And I think you're bringing up a crucial point. It's like, are we rebooting, like basically starting over from scratch? Or are we saying this is a continuation of the same mythology? And so for Charlie's Angels, it's a continuation of the same mythology. When I did Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, it has no connection to the Gene Wilder version at all. It's based on the same book, but I had never seen the original Gene Wilder movie. So I was just completely blank slate and just took my memory of the book. And that became the version of the story we're telling. Didn't have to honor or reference anything from that Gene Wilder version. Was there any discussion of trying to find a way to nod to that more? Or was it truly from the beginning of the conception of that? Tim Burton wants to do his own version of this. He doesn't want to bother with it. So my meeting with Tim was we were at a hotel in Santa Monica and I sit down and every meeting with Tim Burton is like at most 15 minutes. They're really, really short. And he's like, I want to do Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. I want it to be exactly like the book with whatever other stuff you need for it to make sense. I think when I went to that meeting, I actually brought this postcard I had gotten from Roald Dahl because I'd written to him in third grade. I really know Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. I remember what it felt like to me. It's like, great, do that. And I said, should I see the Gene Wilder version? He's like, absolutely not. So I did it until after we started production. What I did notice though is that the executives clearly had a really good familiarity with the Gene Wilder version. And they kept breaking up stuff. It's like, okay, that's not this movie. Like that was, there's nothing in there. And so they would say things like, Charlie's not trying hard enough to win. I'm like, that's not, that's not the book. That's not how this actually works. And they kept having this really classic idea of like, he has to be the protagonist who tries really hard. And in the version I did with Tim, we flipped it so that Charlie is the antagonist who's causing uh, Willy Wonka to have this sort of mental breakdown and, Protagonate. When you did finally watch the Gene Wilder version, how did you feel about your experience writing something that was going to be inevitably compared to this, but as you know, as you mentioned, has nothing to do with it? It was just fascinating to watch every place where I went left, they went right. And in terms of sort of the choices the characters are making, there were some things that were just necessary reductions or changes that we made the same choices. Basically, in the book, all the kids who go to the factory bring both of their parents. And that just doesn't work. Like That's just too many bodies on screen. And so we said like, oh, there's a rule you can only bring one parent. And that's what we each did. The same things happen in the same order. Like the kids get knocked off in the same order. But it's, you know, how it feels is so different. Do you typically do a lot of research in normal circumstances? It depends on every project. With Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, I would go back to Roald Dahl's book and I would like highlight lines and try to bring every little bit of, even an action line, I would try to bring it through into the script. With something like Big Fish is an adaptation, not a remake, but I basically, I could look at the book and say, like, this is lovely. I can't use any of this directly and have to really start over from scratch and really think about sort of how the story wants to be told on a big screen. So it really depends on the on the project. Mighty Ducks is an interesting case because it is the original writer of the franchise coming back. If you were approached about something you've written and, and someone said, hey, would you like to continue this franchise? Would you do it or would you kind of feel like, eh, I've been there? I do encounter that a fair amount where the, I have these series of middle grade books called Arlo Finch and I loved writing all of them. And the issues come up like, oh, should we do that as a series? Should we do that as a movie adaptation? I'm just like, God, I, I spent three years of my life writing these books. I don't know if I want to keep going back to that well. All writers want to write new stuff too. And just like, you don't want to just be known for the only the person who did that. So I think as we wrap up, I got to say, it's definitely true that there's got to be some satirical elements to this, that there is a thought to what does it mean to reboot a franchise? What does it mean to be successful? And I think 
it's something that we all consider and we all think about when we're watching these movies or think we're in agreement on this. Yeah, and, and it's not even cynical to think about as writers, you want things to get made. I always say that my favorite genre of movies are movies that get made and reboots and remakes, are, they're things that can actually get made and that's worth a lot. Well, thank you again for joining us. This was great. And uh, hopefully you get to reboot another movie with the name Charlie in the title. That's my goal. I, I want to be known for only Charlie adaptations. Thanks, Dave. Thank you. All right, each week we wrap up this show with a galaxy brain take from one of our listeners. Here's one now. First time, long time. Thanks for uh, taking my call. Here's my galaxy brain take. It's about the actual hockey. It's the thing they've messed up. Every movie and now the show. First of all, the Flying V is the worst play in hockey or movie sports in general. It's just five people coming after other five people. It's not going to work. It only ever worked the first movie, all right? You know how many kids wasted their time on the knuckle puck and it doesn't work? And now in the TV show, here comes Gordon Bombay. Oh, by the way, worst acting I've ever seen, him opening the notebook and writing in the notebook. Just so, I, I love it, but I hate it and I love it and I hate it. And then his big brain play is the guy trips. Kid trips. Trips and pretends to fall in the puck. How did he write that as a play? And she discovered it in a notebook. What did he write? He pretends to trip and fall? There were X's and O's. I don't. It's so. It's just irresponsible is a thing. And that's the biggest problem. So that's, get better at hockey. End of story. Thank you for some long time. Bye. Okay, so I, I got to ask this question to the caller. Uh, do you complain about the basketball skill and the strategy in Space Jam 2? Because this is a movie. Grow up. Are you going to see a Disney movie about kids trying their best to pick up some pointers about how you can improve your hockey game? Are you going to go see Air Bud to make sure you're playing basketball the way a dog would? This is very angry take, and I don't like it, Dave. Yeah, I, I think you need to calm down here, friend. I think you need to separate fiction from reality a little bit, okay? This is not actual hockey. This is children playing hockey in a movie. In a movie, and let's get into the reality of the movie. Yeah, he did use the kid falling down to put it in because Gordon Bombay is a good coach that watches, and he notices that that kid's going to fall down anyway. That's that kid's skill. He's utilizing that kid's number one skill at this level of his playing to make it so they can get a goal. That's good coaching and never dare in my presence ever again should you besmirch the good name of repo man Emilio Estevez. Before we go, I want to point out this guy said first time, long time. Buddy, this is episode three. I don't know how long you've been listening, but it's probably only been a day. With that said, we'd love to hear your takes on these movies just like ours. <laughs> yeah, it will be way nicer to you next time. This guy, on the other hand, really chapped my hide. If you want to call in, we'd love to hear your Galaxy Brain take on next week's episode. Our number is in our show notes. So give us a call and leave a voicemail with your take. And for God's sakes, make it make sense. That's a wrap on this week's Galaxy Brains. Next week, you'll want to get over here as we are ripping spines and taking names with a dive into Mortal Kombat. There'll be fire dragons, sweet-ass birthmarks, and a lot of chit-chat about a guy named Cole. Jonah, do you know who Cole is? Who's Cole? Is he new? I do not like new things. Change makes me scared. Delete! It's not a birthmark, Cole. It means you've been chosen. 
Galaxy Brace is produced by Kylie Holloway and me, Dave Schilling. The show is engineered by Dan Turek with music from Gautam Shrikashin. Our executive producer is Matt Patches and our developing producer is Zach Mack. Polygon's editor-in-chief is Chris Plant and Russ Frushtick is the director of Special Projects. Special thanks to Andrew Melnizek who helped create the show. And if you like shows with Galaxy Brain in the title, check out Galaxy Brain on YouTube for deep dives into the world of entertainment, hosted by friend of the show, Taylor Moyle. Until next time, I'm Jonah. And I'm still Dave. Show me the money, Steppenwolf! It's toxic. That's good.